Maximize Business Value podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Mastery Partners, where our mission is to equip business owners to maximize business value so they can transition their business on their terms. Our mission was born from the lessons we've learned from over 100 business transactions, which fuels our desire to share our experiences and wisdom so you can succeed. Now, here's your host, CEO of Mastery Partners, Tom Bronson. Hi, this is Tom Bronson, and welcome to Maximize Business Value, a podcast for business owners who are passionate about building long-term, sustainable value in their businesses. In this episode, episode 32, by the way, I'd like to welcome our guest, Oliver Cohn. He's Senior Vice President at Bulkley Capital, an M&A advisory firm based here in Dallas. I've known Oliver for a few years, and although investment banking is a crowded field, Oliver and Bulkley have really separated from the pack in terms of bringing great value to their clients. Uh, We've also uh, both become members of Provisors, which is a professional networking group here in Dallas with groups throughout the country. So if you're interested in that, let me know and uh, and I'll be happy to connect you there. Today, we're going to talk about uh, things a business owner should be thinking about long before they uh, put their business on the market. So welcome to Maximize Business Value, Oliver. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Bulkley Capital. Thank you, Tom, and I'm excited to be here. I've been an avid kind of watcher and listener of your podcast and all your materials, so I'm a huge fan, so it's exciting to be on your podcast. Yes, uh, yes, again, I'm Oliver Cohn. I'm with Bulkley Capital. So we are a M&A advisor. We work with owners and founders and family owners who have inherited privately held businesses. So we work in the middle market. We work with clients, I'd say, anyone who has 3 million of EBITDA and up, I I don't think you'll ever hear an investment banker saying something's too big for them, but something becomes too small for us underneath that level, typically. And really, we just work to help them execute and plan for successful M&A transactions. Awesome. It's a, it's a great firm. I've grown a, a lot of great respect for, for Bulkley and their success there. So uh, what is your background and why did you become an M&A advisor? Well, you might be able to tell I don't have an accent from Texas. So I grew up in England. I went to undergrad over there at Oxford. And after that, I moved over to Dallas, which was the mid 90s and worked for a few years at a venture capital group. And that was where I kind of cut my chops on the financial side. I really didn't have any finance background until then. And so I learned in what is a very kind of analytical industry, the venture capital side, that I liked quantitative modeling, financial analysis, and most importantly, working with entrepreneurs. So we were working with people who obviously were trying to get businesses started, had been very successful before, and now had a new idea. That business wound down, and I found myself introduced to the founder of Bulkley Capital back in 2001. So I've been here for almost 20 years and found that this was a great opportunity to keep those same skill sets also work with entrepreneurs, but actually work with entrepreneurs who owned businesses that actually did something versus being just an idea on the back of a cocktail napkin. So I like the idea of working as a partner um, for these business owners. You know, it gives you a chance to be part of something that's very exciting, big deal. Anything we're working on is typically maybe the most major transaction that's happened in these business owners' lives. So that's great to be part of that, to see the value you're adding. We like to say 
you know, we really partner up our skill set, our financial skill set and capital markets knowledge with their knowledge of how to run a business. We couldn't do what they can do. They can maybe do what we do, but we just have done it many more times than they have. So by bringing us in, you know, we're, I was talking to someone the other day, if you are selling your business, the person on the other side of the table is probably a professional deal maker. They've probably done hundreds of these and you've never done it before. So using us, you level the playing field. We get to marry our skill sets with their experience. And I think, you know, it's a lot of fun and very rewarding to see them really finally take chips off the table or build the liquidity that they've been looking for. You know, my, my dad had an old uh, saying that, uh, that he used to tell us all the time. And that was, if you really want to learn a skill, you got to hang around with the people that do it because you can't beat a man at his own trade. Right. Uh, and, and, and that really uh, plays out to be true in, in, uh, in selling a business, many, many times, particularly sizable businesses, the ones that the types of businesses that you represent are, you know, $3 million uh, and above in EBITDA. Uh, and, and you're probably sitting across the table from a professional, somebody who's done this many, many times. Mm-hmm. It's really important to have somebody on your side of the table who also has done this because you can't beat a person at their own game. And I assure you, when you're sitting across from a buyer like that, that is their game, uh, and they know it. So it's important to have somebody on your side of the table. So, Oliver, exactly. tell me what are what are some of the reasons that a business owner might decide that it's time to sell? Yeah, well, as you and I both know, a lot of people don't really plan it carefully enough and aren't doing it deliberately. There's a lot of times some external forces. So maybe you know they've they hear that someone else that they know has exited, and that sparks an interest in their mind. Hopefully, it's not. You know, sometimes it's you know, health concerns or something like that. Oftentimes, what we've seen a lot is, you know, a lot of business owners build their business. They are thinking that eventually they're going to sell. And maybe there's that one strategic player out there that they think that is the ultimate buyer. And one day, in among all the other emails, phone calls, and letters they get from generic buyers, they receive an inquiry from someone like that and think, oh, well, maybe this is real. I don't want to miss that opportunity. The other side of things is more internal and more intentional, which I think, you know, for the more astute business owners is often the case. We see a lot of times our clients have reached a point where, yes, they still love the business. Yes, they're still excited. Maybe they're not ready to sit on a beach, but they have suddenly realized, whether it's sudden or over time, the amount of risk that they're bearing on their shoulders that is now much larger than they ever thought it was going to be when they started the business. So whether that's you know, financial risk that most of their net worth is tied up in this one illiquid asset, <laughs> this, this stock that they can't, tr- can't sell, or just the, the personal risk around guaranteeing bank debt or insurance concerns or employee concerns about a business that now has 200 employees versus just three family members when they started it. And I think that weighs on people and they realize, look, I ought to do something about that for me, for my family. It's be smart to actually diversify my net worth, reduce my personal risk, and maybe there's a way to do that and actually help the business. Because, you know, what we like to say to a lot of business owners is you may or may not realize it, but perhaps your stage of life, you're holding this company back at this point. You're not aggressive like you used to be. You're more interested in taking money out of the business and putting it back in. You want to preserve your wealth, not lay it down again for the next bet and the next hand. And, you know, maybe that's there's more that could be done with this business if you, you know, 
to the extent of the ownership side of things and the risk concentration would get out the way. Not that you need to leave running the business, but bring in more capital, make sure that you know you're safe from the personal balance sheet, and then you can start to be aggressive again. You know, that's it. you brought up a couple of great points here that I wanted to be sure that I that I highlighted. You know, um, I hear frequently from sellers that, oh man, it'll be easy to sell my business because I get calls. You know, people call me all the time wanting to sell my business. And, and and my stock answer to that is if you're in business, buyers are calling. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're all real buyers, right? And so what what do you say to that? Yeah, we we face that all the time. And I think every business owner we talk to says, you know, I get calls all the time. There's plenty of buyers out there. I think the trick is, is exactly what you said, is for any given business, you might have the best, prettiest business in the world. I don't believe there are hundreds of potential buyers, at least that are not good for you and are going to give you the best value in the top dollar. Um, that requires really passing through that um, that noise and finding the real ones. You know, we do a lot. We work with a lot of business owners who are looking to make acquisitions. So we work on the buy side a lot of times of corporate buyers. And, you know, that's one of the things we always talk about is that when we're going to start calling companies, potential targets, we need to be able to be noticed and be taken seriously. And for us, when we call a business owner on behalf of a client as a buyer, we always say who we represent. We always explain the work that's been done to think about acquisitions and why we're looking to expand into a particular area. And we are not necessarily saying that we're only interested in buying this company. There may be opportunities to do strategic relationships and partnerships, whatever it might be. But I think to get credibility with that business owner, and I, this is what we tell business owners, you know, you shouldn't take a call, you shouldn't take move on in discussions if they won't tell you who their client is. Because oftentimes people in my industry who are really looking for a sell side client saying, you know, there's interest in your business when, yeah, there's no specific interest in there's specific interest in that industry, but not in that company. That's brilliant. I, I didn't realize that, uh, that that is y'all's process because, you know, as a, as a former business owner, you know, people who listen to this podcast know that I have, that I have bought or sold a hundred businesses in my career. I got calls all the time. My phone was ringing off the hook, you know, and, <laughs> And I never really thought to ask that question. Okay, you're an investment banker. Who do you represent? Well, we want to get under NDA and then we can right. talk about it. Now, I want to know who you represent. That is a great piece of advice uh, for folks out there because it could be genuinely just a fishing expedition to find yeah. out if you're willing to sell and then we'll go find your buyer, right? No, right. That, that's it. And by a, the way, a, before they even know how big you are, how profitable you are, so they can't tell you for sure that they're interested. <laughs> so. Exactly. The other, the other point that you made was sometimes the business owner is holding the business back. And it may be because they're, they're a little risk averse now because they, they don't want to put everything at risk. But it also could be, uh, I kind of think of, of business owners, um, they have a sweet spot, right? I mean, some business owners are just relentless at startups. They're really, really good at startups. But once it grows to a certain level, <laughs> they need to have somebody else to, in order to take it on to the next level. Yeah. Uh, then you've got people who are really good at running kind of lower middle market businesses. They can run a $50 million business, but once it, once it gets to a certain size, then it gets out of control for them. It is a very, very rare commodity to find somebody that can take a business from a startup 
to a billion dollar business because there are different skill sets yeah. that are kind of needed all along the way. And it's rare to find all of those different skill sets in one person. And, so, and you know where it manifests itself? It manifests itself oftentimes for us, at least, in business owners who are no longer energized by the company anymore because they feel like, hey, I mean, I, I can name several clients over the years who's, who came to us and said, when we had five employees and I was rushing around, I was doing a bit of everything. It was exciting. It was energizing. I really enjoyed building a business. Now I'm maintaining a business and I'm worrying about pay HR and I'm worrying about insurance contracts. And, you know, it's now it's just a drag and I'm ready for the next thing. So we've had clients, you know, the one category we didn't mention before is just people who feel like I've done what I needed to do. And to your point, I don't think I'm going, I have a great idea for the next phase of growth. And that's not my thing. Um, managing from 50 million to 100 and putting in processes and HR systems and adding to admin is not what I'm really about. I want to go and do the next thing. And so this business sale is my opportunity to have some capital to invest in the next thing. And most of them, you know, you know the type of person. I mean, they've got a bunch of ideas going through their head that they've been thinking over the last 20 years of what they're going to do next. So right. this is their chance to do that. Right. Well, and sometimes, though, it's just that, uh, that perhaps they just need the capital to go out. They've got a great idea, yeah. but they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the capital. Uh, so, so uh, but they realize in order to take the company to the next level, they can't do it on their own. Are there, are there options for kind of raising capital other than just an outright sale? Yeah, I'd say the answer is absolutely yes. Um, and I think, you know, maybe hidden behind your question is this assumption that I think a lot of business owners have that they have two choices in life as a business owner, all in or all out. And for us, we talk about a kind of continuum of ownership and capital structures and liquidity options all the way from do nothing to an outright sale. And we're often, that's usually the first conversation with clients is, what are your options? You can't make a good decision about what you want to do until you know all your options. And if the real goal to your point is, I need capital to grow. I Maybe I would like some expertise at the table, someone to talk to that can help me grow that's been there before. You don't have to sell your whole company to do that. And there's been an increasing amount of capital available that is non-control or is control or is not is even non-equity, right? I mean, I think we talk about various levels of debt providers that, and then equity investors and different types of equity investors. And if you imagine kind of a sliding scale, the more you move to the right and up, it gets more expensive in terms of interest or giving up upside, which is the most expensive, giving up equity. But the dollars become bigger and what you can do with that and hopefully the value add in addition to the capital um, gets bigger. Um, you know, there's there's a whole range of capital providers out there now. It's a very efficient market and, you know, lots of options to choose from. People should, you know, they have the right to choose what's right for them all the way from non-controlized. We are meeting with someone this morning that's thinking of a non-controlled investment, primarily for personal wealth diversification, but also to help grow the business but believes so much in the upside and that sees so much opportunity and is key and wants to keep running the business that they don't want to give up more of that upside than they have to. So that, that would be a, they would retain control of that business. Cause I think a, a common perception out there is look, when I bring in an outside investor, 
I'm going to lose control of my business. And, and yeah. I call the shots as I tell people uh, frequently, cause I've, I've sold many of my businesses to very large companies. And I tell them the same thing. Um, you know, I'm a great CEO. I'm a terrible employee. Uh, <laughs> and so, so I know man's got to know his own limitations. Right. And yeah. so, so, uh, so I typically will, will sell a business outright and move on. Uh, but, but are there options? Like if you want to retain control, are there, are there mm -hmm. investors out there that would do that kind of thing? Yeah. I'd say increasingly over the last you know, several years in particular, 10 or 15 years ago, it felt like private equity was, you had to sell control. They wanted to be in charge of everything. Yes, you'd keep a small piece, but they were going to have the lion's share of the ownership. That market, as everyone has heard, I think is, there's more and more money out there. It's become much more competitive. I think, I think there's two and a half, you know, trillion dollars of capital out on the sidelines globally that hasn't been invested in companies. As it became more competitive, as the, sh the availability of good deals became more tight, you know, these investors have to become a little bit more kind of flexible about what they're looking for and to get the money to work. That's obviously their mandate. And so we've seen an increasing number of institutional groups, private equity funds, comfortable with minority investments, non-control investments. There are some that even focus on that, but that's all they do. And whether that's a combination of some mezzanine debt and equity or just equity, certainly to your point, you know, less than a 51% position, less than full control of the board or the ownership rights. Um, so it's very doable um, to retain that kind of upside, retain a bit more control over your own destiny. I wouldn't suggest that life is completely normal. Once you bring in an institutional investor, they will have expectations. They will want to be part of very key decisions. And Critically, I think they are going to want to see a path to liquidity. Um, the only way they operate is to get that money back at a good return for their investors. And when you're not in control, your risk is you're kind of along for the ride. So I think there's you've got to understand that there's going to be a need to cash them out at some point. But you can do it on your own terms and somewhat on your own timetable if they're only a 20, 30, 40% owner in the business because the dollar amounts you know, it's smaller. You don't have to sell the whole business necessarily to cash them out. And you can determine in advance the mechanics of that and how that's going to be worked out. So it's, a, it's definitely a viable option nowadays. Two and a half trillion dollars of, of dry powder, I call it out there, that it's <laughs> uh, looking for a place and looking for a home. I, it seems to me, I, I, I don't try to hold me to this, but it seems to me uh, several years ago, I heard, I heard the number was like 3.4 billion. Does that mean that a billion of it has, or trillion, trillion, sorry. Does that mean a trillion of it has already been placed somewhere or did some of it get pulled off the market? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It might be me, like my number comes from one part of that industry and yours from another. I don't know. It's it's hard to track. Right. So Certainly you mentioned earlier- Given the number of calls I get for, given the number of calls we get from equity groups looking to put money to work, there's a lot of it, whatever the number is. <laughs> yeah, there's there is a lot, you know, in good economic times and bad economic times, there are always there is always money looking for good investments. Uh, you know, uh, even uh, Warren Buffett says, you know, stocks are the only thing that people don't buy on sale. He's always looking to buy businesses. Uh, that are good value can bring value to his shareholders, and and even in bad economic times, money might be a little bit tighter, and the restrictions might be a little different. Mm -hmm. There is always money looking for good opportunities. 
uh, where it can be invested. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you, you mentioned in there uh, a term mezzanine debt, just for the purposes of folks who don't understand that, what does that term mean? Yeah, so in my world, that would, I, I place that as kind of subordinated debt. So it comes behind uh, senior debt, bank, what we would think of typically as bank debt. So it's second in priority to getting paid in a, in a downside scenario. And um, so, you know, it's more risky for the lender than a fully collateralized or senior loan. So therefore, it charges a little bit more. The benefit is, is that it stretches further than a typical bank would or a senior loan would, would stretch. So you're able to access more capital by taking on that kind of debt, which has a higher cost, like I say, but gives you access to capital. And it's still, in my view, you know, that's not as high a cost as giving up equity. You know, the cost of equity is immeasurable, right? It has no upside because if you grow to the moon, that equity is going to be worth billions you always know what the uh, mezzanine debt is going to be is going to cost you. So you know the other thing is that it's typically, oftentimes you don't have to pay the principal back until the end, kind of what we would call the balloon or bullet maturity um, on principal amortization. So you're actually, even though the interest might be higher and you're paying quite a lot in interest every year, that big chunk of the actual amount that they've lent the principal is not due to the end. So it frees you up um, your cash flow up. Awesome, thank you. That uh, that's helpful uh, for our listeners. So, so when you're raising capital, let's say that a business owner has decided that he doesn't really want to sell his business outright. He either wants to raise a minority or majority uh, capital in his business. Is the preparation for doing that different than for preparing your business for a sale? Yeah, it really isn't. Uh, I don't think. I think it's you know you're still talking to the same type of sophisticated buyer slash investor. I think you still have to be able to, you know, demonstrate the the strengths of the business. And if you think about it, if we go back to the minority investor, op, you know, alternative, as I said earlier, in some ways that investor could view themselves as kind of at the mercy of this team and this business, kind of along for the ride. So demonstrating exactly why this is a good predictable business and telling a good story, a strong story perhaps becomes even more important um, in preparing for that um, exercise because now you really, really are buying into your team and your vision and your strategy because they don't really have the ability to change it if they don't, if it doesn't work out the way they think it's going to work out. So. Right, right. So, so the preparation uh, is important. You know, one of the things that, uh, that uh, in my experience uh, that I find very common is that that really most business owners don't have a realistic opinion of the value of their business. So they want to go raise capital or they want to sell the business and they don't really have a realistic opinion uh, or a realistic uh, understanding of what the what the business is worth on the open market. Uh, mm-hmm. So so how how should they go about addressing that? Yeah, you're right. I think I find that people either extrapolate market multiples or multiples they've heard at the country club when someone said, I sold my business for 10 times, or they just have an arbitrary number in their head that they've always said, if I can get X, that's success. And that's, that's what I need. You know, the way that really it works and the way that I've seen, and sometimes people come to us having done this, the first step oftentimes is talk to your financial advisor, your wealth manager, work out what it is that you need and to maintain your lifestyle for immediate cash needs, whatever it might be. 
And that's oftentimes the driver of coming to us. So they're having a conversation with their wealth advisor that says, you know, you need to diversify. And then they then they ask about, you know, if I wanted to carry on living in this way and doing these things, how much money would I need in the bank? And then they can come to us and they know in their mind, you know, that's not an arbitrary number anymore. That's actually a number that means something that is a bar that you want to meet. And then coming to us, you know, we're going to talk about based on our activity, how much we're in the market, I think we can have a pretty good estimate of what's reasonable and realistic to expect from the market for any specific business. And it really comes down to, it's not just the industry, it's not just the location, it's the quality of that business, the size, the profitability, what the opportunity, what the upside is, where they've been, all kinds of things play into that. And we we talk about that on the front end, and we would not go you know, I think I don't think you should ever go to a buyer, start talk, calling, making that first call until we and the client are on the same page as to what's going to be acceptable and what we think is is achievable. We're not we're not going to start a transaction if we think their expectations are out of whack. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and hopefully we're fairly conservative. We we outperform what our initial estimate is, which typically tends to be the way. Hopefully, the competitive process we run generates an even better market um, number. And we don't, by the way, do not go to the market with a purchase price. Right? I mean, I think all that would do would be to set the ceiling on what you could get. So we're going to let the market tell us, but I think just based on you know the level of activity we do and who we talk to and who we know, we can have a pretty good sense of what's going to be realistic before anyone starts doing anything. So uh, just to be clear now, because that is some great advice. We advise our clients all the time that that they should, if they don't have a financial advisor, they need one who can tell them what the number is that they're trying to achieve, right? What, what Where do I need to be in order to live my lifestyle for my ex- life expectancy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and provide for my, my family, my spouse, whatever, uh, for the rest of my life? They need to know that number, but that is not tied to the value of the business, right? That's the number we know you need, but yeah. that doesn't determine the value of your business. If that number is 5 million and your business is only worth two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean you can go out and sell your business for 5 million. Okay, now I know I need 5 million. Here it is. And yeah. so uh, just, just no, to be interesting. clear. <laughs> we come at it from two sides and, you know, I think we can give a pretty good sense, like I said, of what's achievable. And usually the surprise is on the other side. Usually, once they talk to an advisor about all the structural options and the tax options available, they actually find out that they don't need to sell for as high a number as they thought in order to achieve all their goals. Not that they should take a lower number, but you know, it's not always as high a bar as some business owners expect um, just based on their own knowledge. I actually had, uh, had a financial advisor that, that saved a deal one time where the buyer got uh, cold feet because suddenly because of the tax structure and and uh, and the outcome that they weren't going to get what they felt like they needed in order to survive so we got a financial advisor involved very quickly who determined that hey this number actually meets your financial target uh, for the rest of your life. And it actually saved the deal where if they'd have walked away, they might not ever get a deal like that again. And so it's so important to have a really good, strong 
team of advisors around you. That includes having a great investment banker who can help you prepare the business and, and get it going. You need a good financial advisor. You need a great CPA. You need an attorney. We take the approach of, of you need a team of people to uh, to help reach this. So, so that's awesome. All great advice. We're talking with Oliver Cohn. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Every business will eventually transition some internally to employees and managers, and some externally to third-party buyers. Mastery Partners equips business owners to maximize business value so they can transition their businesses on their terms using our four-step process. We start with a snapshot of where your business is today. Then we help you understand where you want to be and design a custom strategy to get you there. Next, we help you execute that strategy with the assistance of our amazing resource network. And ultimately, you'll be able to transition your business on your terms. What are you waiting for? More time? More revenue? If you want to maximize your business value, it takes time. Now is that time. Get started today by checking us out at www.masterypartners.com or email us at info at masterypartners.com to learn more. We're back with Oliver Cohn, Senior Vice President at Bulkley Capital, an M&A advisory firm here in Dallas. And we're talking about preparing a business for that ultimate transaction. So uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote a blog post on the rigors of due diligence. Uh, be sure to go have a look at that. It's right on our web website. It gives kind of a, a little bit, peel back the sheets and take a look at what due diligence really is. Uh, but before a business owner ever starts the process, what are the kinds of things that they need to have in place to prepare for that ultimate due diligence? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, it comes down and we have to put ourselves, step back, put ourselves in the eyes, in the shoes of the buyer, right? You know, every business owner and operator, what they think is really important is just what they do every day and their knowledge of the customers. And they can say, we've got these great relationships. It's, you know, no, we're not going to lose our customer because I play golf with them every month. If you're coming from the outside, all you really have to go on, at least at the beginning, is the numbers. And I think everything starts with the numbers. And you need to make sure that you have scrubbed the numbers, that those numbers are defendable, that they're real, they're not going to change. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not going to reveal you know, you're half as profitable as you thought you were once someone actually takes a look at them with a CPA's um, viewpoint. So good validated financial results is number one. And there's been a thing, an emergence over the last few years, when you talk about diligence, a core part of the diligence from a buyer's perspective is bringing in an accounting firm, CPA firm to do what we would call a quality of earnings report. It's kind of studying the numbers. And it's more than I mean, somewhat like an audit, but it's not really an audit. It's more geared towards a transaction. So proving out profitability, cash flow, are they recruit, are they reporting in the correct way? What does working capital look like? The last few years has been a big push that sellers are now producing those kinds of reports before they go to market. And I, I've become a big believer in that. I think it's a real way to have the numbers presented in the way the buyer wants to see them. It's the analysis they would run themselves and obviously, you're going to identify issues early on and address them. And frankly, you identify on an M&A transaction when we're selling businesses, you're probably going to both identify and validate and you know, have a third party who endorses them adjustments to your earnings that are going to increase your value at the end of the day. So 
you know, we've had every time that we've worked with a business owner, there's all kinds of addbacks that people talk about, addbacks to EBITDA, right? So things that are running through the business that aren't really affiliated with the business, one-time non-recurring expenses that we should be really stripping out. It's one thing just to say they're there, but to have a report show that they're there and, and provide the backup for that um, adds a lot of value. And every time we've done a sell-side uh, report, that sell-side advisor has identified additional adjustments to earnings that we in the company didn't even know about. So even if it's just simply the way of reporting for accounting standards that they were doing incorrectly, but ends up with a higher earnings, you know, expensing things they could have been depreciating, that kind of stuff. But that pays for itself because think of the multiple on those earnings that is then paid by the buyer. So I'm a big believer in that. And then secondly, so that's just having your consolidated numbers good and defendable. Secondly, and we've talked about this in the past, and I've heard you speak about this, Tom, is processes and reporting systems internally, having your hand handle on the data as your, your operating data as you go forward. I like We like to talk about when buyers come into diligence, especially financial buyers, they almost, the way they're going to attack it is to take apart the income statement and put it back together, right? And check that the top and the bottom still match if they look at it from a customer perspective, a product perspective, a market perspective, a skew perspective, a margin perspective. They want to slice and dice all of your data and make sure it still adds up, which by the way, also reveals things about your business. You know, where are you making your money? Do you have overly concentration and a couple of customers? So your ability to track that kind of information and run reports is key because you can be sure that they're going to be asking all kinds of questions and if you can't answer those questions, it makes it harder for them to get aggressive, makes them harder for them to get enthusiastic about the business. So you just help them along as a buyer by being able to answer the questions. I think the whole quality of earnings advice is really great. I, I had a, uh, a great friend of mine who is an investor in a business here uh, locally. It was about a $300 million business. Maybe, maybe it was a $100 million business. They ultimately sold it for about $350 million. Um, but uh, one of the recommendations from their uh, investment banker was to go ahead and do the, the uh, sell side quality of earnings report. And, and so I asked one of the investors in that business who happened to also be a board member, I said, so what was the outcome, right? I mean, how do you feel about that? He said, look, you know, we invested for the, for the investment that we made up front for that, it returned 10 times that by doing that in advance. So that is a great piece of advice uh, uh, to do that in advance. Uh, and secondly, I, I advise people to, it, no, no matter the size of their business, particularly once we get into kind of the realm where you are operating at, at 3 million and above, you probably ought to be having an annual audit uh, of your numbers because an audit is just a third party that's validating that your numbers are accurate. And if you've got a firm that's doing your audit, doing a quality of earnings report is a lot less expensive, right? Than, than having to start from scratch and go do that and build it from nothing. Uh, yeah. I will tell you that I made a giant mistake one time in my business. I waited until uh, I had a business that was doing about 20, 25 million in revenue. And that was when we first decided to go ahead and, and do the audits because we knew we were a couple of years from a transaction. Mm -hmm. And waiting that long 
it was like, you know, nails on a chalkboard. It took nine months. It was twice as expensive as we thought it was going to be. It was enormously disruptive to our, to our finance team. So I'm a big fan of starting audits when you're small, uh, hmm. because then you put processes in place that make it easier in the long run. And, and then you can negotiate and, and get a good deal for, for doing audits often. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems like an unnecessary cost for this year's PL. But if you think about it as the value it's going to create down the road, um, yeah, like you say, huge payback on those kinds of things. Just, just don't leave the buyer with any kind of question marks. I mean, it just, just helps everything. That's it. Totally. So, so some owners may sit back and say, geez, why do I need to prepare all this stuff in advance? You know, why don't, why don't we just go out and put it on the market and see what the buyer asks? Uh, in my opinion, that's a big mistake. You know, our clients are already, they've built a data room, they can slice and dice the data, they can do that. So why is it important to have all of this really ready uh, to go before you go to market? Yeah, I, I think that the way to to maximize value at the end of the day is to keep the timeline and the negotiating leverage on your side. And for me, that comes through continued momentum and things not, no roadblocks, no road humps, whatever you want to say in the road as you go forward. Preparation is the way to maintain that momentum once you're out in the market. If you can keep buyer enthusiasm by keeping that timeline short, keep everyone moving fast, respond to questions quickly, give the data that people want. A, it looks impressive and they get more convinced that you're the right deal for them. B, you just keep that momentum. You, they don't, you don't give them an edge in the, in the negotiations. So momentum is everything for us. And you know, having that stuff in advance, we can spend as much time on the preparation of a company before we make that first phone call as we do from that first phone call to close. I think it's equally as important. Um, you know, we, our well-used phrase here is that selling a business is a process, not an event. You don't just get up and do it the next day. And that's a process that starts way before you go to market because, I, again, it's investment of time and effort that pays off multiple fold once you get into diligence and once you get into the market. Yeah, I, I'm a, uh, I agree with you on the, uh, the, the keeping the momentum, keeping it on your time frame. And if things kind of grind to a halt because you can't produce the data that they need, that's a deal killer. Um, you know, it, it really make- is. You either, you either lose interest because they've got a lot of other deals to look at. The numbers you then produce are now three months old, so they just want the new version of that by the time you get them the first version. And and lastly, I mean, it, and in the worst case, it starts raising questions about your ability to, how well do you know your business? Can you pull the numbers out? If you can't pull these numbers out, how good are all the other numbers we got, right? So you never want, like we said earlier, don't put a seed of doubt in anyone's mind. Right, exactly. Keep it going. Now, does it make a difference uh, on the various types of buyers that might be interested in, in kind of where you need to prepare the business to? Does it, are there certain buyers looking for some things and others looking for other things? I, I mean, I suppose so. Um, and a lot of it is around, if you just take the simple distinction between a corporate buyer, strategic buyer, and a financial buyer, the financial buyer typically is going to have a heavier lean against 
you know, bias against who's this management team. They're effectively backing the team, not just as much as they are the business. So for them, it might be important. For a strategic buyer, perhaps that senior team is less important because they feel like they've got that. But I think you still need to prepare in the same way. Most of our clients, uh, you know, want to talk to both sets of those buyers. So you're doing the same kind of work in the beginning anyway. Um, it's very rare that someone is very focused on one and not the other uh, market of buyers. But, you know, if it is, it's usually that they don't want to talk to strategic buyers. They want to remain independent. They want the company to remain independent from an industry perspective, at least. And so it's really just financial buyers they're talking to. And then obviously, you know, then we know those kind of focuses, you know, it's the numbers side, it's the people side, uh, it's the market opportunity side of things. You know, you, you would feel that if you were purely going to strategic, so we sold a, you know, an engineering firm a few years back, a civil engineering firm. And really the interest there was really just becoming part of a larger platform in the industry. So we were talking only to industry insiders, you know, people that knew the space. So we were able to be very kind of narrowed and focused in the information we prepared and provided because we didn't have to educate anyone about or how does the engineering industry work and what's happening in the markets and which areas are hot and which are not. So we could just predict what they were looking for in terms of a very short list of information and put it out there for very quick, effective conversations. But that's, you know, that's not the most, the most common situation is you want everything out there and you want to be able to choose your options. Well, because you may not know when you start, unless you unless you start the process focused very specifically on the types of buyers, you may have a financial buyer and a, a strategic buyer who are looking at the business at the same time, and they may have kind of different needs. So that's why it's important to to prepare yeah. that stuff uh, well, I think, in advance. I think to that point, there's you know the scuttlebutt kind of in the industry over the last few years is that. At one time, you thought it was common knowledge that strategic buyers would pay the most and be the most aggressive. And it's kind of flipped the last few years in many sectors that the private equity buyers are the ones that are more aggressive. And we've had two or three situations recently where, what I mentioned earlier, the, the whole reason we were talking to people, it was kind of spurred by a strategic buyer approaching them and conversation starting. And then them hiring us both to help in those conversations to make sure that they had someone on their side, like you were saying earlier. And secondly, well, let's, how do we know that's the best option? Why don't we talk to a few other people just to make sure we have a good sense of what our options are, keep this first group honest. And I'd say that in a couple of times that I can think of recently where that was the case, our client, I think, probably still expected that that strategic was going to be the buyer at the end of the day, but saw the value of bringing in some other people. And both times, uh, those, those companies have ended up being acquired by private equity groups who were more moved more quickly, were more flexible in terms of structure and terms, would pay more, you know, and just made it less, you know, put up fewer roadblocks to a deal getting done, I should say that way, and just were, you know, able to, you know, get the deal through that um, by being more aggressive than, you know, some corporate buyers are hemmed in by some agreements they've made internally, like we're only going to pay this or we're not going to get into this space or we're not going to structure a deal as a stock purchase or whatever it might be, right? So, you know, people have been surprised. And so to your point, you need to be ready to be open to other options. 
No doubt, no doubt. So let's talk about something a little uh, a little dicier here, and that is, look, every business has warts, right? Every business has has something that's wrong, something that uh, that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be fixed. How do you feel about identifying those and disclosing them to potential buyers in advance? Yeah, I think short answer is yes, absolutely, you should. And that's part of the reason from a financial standpoint of those sell-side quality of earnings reports that we identify things. If, if, if you never want a buyer to be the one to find out something bad about your business, you know, especially not in diligence. If you're in diligence, it means you've signed an exclusivity with that buyer. You've turned other buyers and options away. So you have fewer options at this point. Um, you're halfway up the aisle, right? And they have the opportunity then to use that against you to a much greater extent than they could before earlier in the process, right? So if they find indiligence, chances are they're going to try and use it against you in terms of something in the deal, whether it's valuation or just structure or terms. In the worst case, they feel like you were trying to hide that from them. And that's not a good starting point for a partnership going forward and for them trusting you the rest of the time. You know, I would flip it and say, if we can identify things up front, A, we put them out on the table so they can't be used against us later. So you just, you know, negate that possibility. B, you can start developing or even executing on strategies to mitigate those problems and fix them. And by the way, if you're an investor or buyer coming in, that's what, it, what better example of how strong this management team is or this company is that they've actually they've identified a problem and they're fixing it and they come up with a way to do it. So I don't see a downside. And if there's a real downside, <laughs> like if it's really damaged the value of business, that's going to come out anyway. So you probably should go away and fix that before you go to market anyway. I mean, you're not going to keep that hidden. And that's the whole point of diligence. Yeah, you as I, as I'm a fond of saying, you know, you can try to sweep something under the carpet, but if you have uh, a a strong um, buyer, somebody who's done this before, they're not only going to peel back the carpet, they're going to peel back the flooring and the subfloor. They're going to get all the way down to the foundation, right? Right. Uh, and so, so trying to hide it is a is a giant mistake. Let me let me give a great example of that uh, in a business that. Uh, that uh, we were trying to sell a number of years ago, uh, we were measuring our customer satisfaction. And that was just a normal part of the way we did business. But we bought a company that had a particularly bad, what we call NPS, a net promoter score, right? Uh, these are the number the customers who would promote us versus the customers that it, what you would call detractors uh, when you calculated NPS. If you want to know how to calculate NPS, you can go to our website and we'll give you examples of how to do that. But we had a particularly low one. It was minus 24, right? Minus 24, which meant I had a lot more people who didn't like us than actually did like us. So we talked about that in our management presentation, even before we took offers. We told them, here's what it is, why it is, and what we're doing to fix it. Uh, and and then, you know, months later, we're down in negotiations. We, uh, we, we negotiate a deal. We're in due diligence. We get to the end of due diligence, and, and then comes what I call the retrade. This is where they're going to uh, uncover the things that they uncovered during due diligence, and they're going to use that to renegotiate the deal. We already had the deal, but now they're going to say, well, we found these things, and we're going to need to lower the price. So, which is, I call it the retrade conversation. I'm sure that you may have a term for that yeah. as well, but, but, uh, but, 
So uh, I, I get the call. It's about two or three weeks before we're scheduled to close the transaction. Uh, and it was a CEO of the buyer, a big publicly traded company. Uh, and we have a couple of, you know, uh, 10 minutes or so of just you know, chit chat, you know, talking about what's going on and various things. And I, I finally said, hey, look, I know this just isn't a social call. So so what can I do for you today? And he said, well, you know, uh, a couple of things came up in due diligence and I, and I want to talk to talk to you about them. And I'm like, Yes, I've been ready for this. This is the retrade call. Okay, we're going to find out what you discovered. And the first thing that he mentioned was, he said, you know, in, in this group, you've got an unbelievably low uh, net promoter score, a customer satisfaction rating, and it's lower than we've ever seen. And I said, really? It's lower than you've ever seen? And he said, tell me, how did you measure it? And, and he went through their uh, what their ultimate score was, and it was minus 22, okay? Don't forget, I had already disclosed months earlier that it was minus 24. So immediately I go into thinking, okay, when did I disclose this? And I thought, oh, yes, I remember. It was in the management presentation that we gave. And I said, say, are you sitting at your desk and do you have access to a computer? Yeah, yeah, I'm sitting there. I said, do you still have that presentation that that we gave you back when your management team came down and we walked through that. At the same time, by the way, I'm scrambling. I'm opening this up yeah. and <laughs> the slides, right? And I get to the slide. I said, oh, there it is. Okay. I said, hey, why don't you open that up and split to slide 76? And he said, he said, what am I going to find there? And I said, when you get there, you're going to see that back in August last year, before you made the offer, I disclosed to you that we had a minus 24, and I told you what we were doing to fix that. And you just confirmed that what we're doing is working because it's now a minus 22, <laughs> so it's moving in the right direction. And while I appreciate that this is the retrade call, it's not going to be on that. What else do you have? <laughs> Perfect. And it yeah. stopped him dead in his tracks, right? And right. so, so we were able to save a piece of that negotiation because we had disclosed this in advance. Now, that's a long story, yeah. but it, it, it really gets to the core of know what the challenges are, know what the warts are, and disclose them and disclose what you're doing about them. Uh, it will go a long way to raise that credibility, and it will prevent them from discovering this on their own. So, Well, especially when... You know, if you think about the dynamics of a process where you're having some conversations and everyone's on their best behavior and they're trying to win the deal versus when they kind of have won the deal in diligence, you know, you've, like I said, you're only talking to them. Give them that bad news when they're still whining and dining you. And they will say, you know, they'll say, okay, we understand it. You're doing something about it. Great. We'll take that into account when we make our evaluation, we make our offer. And that's that's what you're looking for, because um, then it can't, to your point, can't use against you on valuation later. So. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 interestingly, I'm, I'm really shocked that they did this. Interestingly, they uncovered that what we were doing was working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, even if they were asleep by slide 76 of a presentation, but um <laughs> yes. Yes. So it's still not an excuse. <laughs> no, exactly. So, so what about mitigating risks in advance? If you've got uh, risks in your business, what should you do to, to, to mitigate those? Yeah, I think for buyers, if I, if you're a buyer, there's, you know, various types of risk that come up again and again in a business. And again, when you're on the outside, all those risks are intensified because you don't know it. You don't have the tribal knowledge. You don't know those people as well. And you don't know the business as well. But 
any concentration of business is a risk. So whether it's customer concentration, vendor concentration, employee concentration, you know, people, a salesperson who has 90% of the sales underneath them or all the customer relationships, you know, all those kinds of risks, you know, and I would lump them all into that diversification bucket. For me, as a business owner, you're trying to downplay or get rid of all those kinds of risks because those are risks to you as a business owner anyway, not just the buyer, um, if you think about it. So you're trying to, you know, strengthen what you're doing, what buyers are really looking for at the end of the day. Think about a bio is really paying for the future, right? We might value companies on last year's earnings and multiples of EBITDA, but that money's already gone, right? What they're really paying for is the future. And the more certain that future and the more positive it is, the more someone will pay for that because it's more clear that they're going to get their return. So that's why on the extreme side, a software business with every every piece of revenue under contract for the next five years is worth a lot because no brainer, it's going to come in all the way down to just a regular business. And you're trying to have management contracts or customer contracts with your customers, or maybe it's just, you've got a really long track record with them. So all of those things, I think, if you the more you can do up front, that's what's going to build value in the marketplace, um, strengthening your team, making sure you have the right people in the right seats, you know, diversifying the revenue base. You, I saw you speak once and you talked about, look at your product mix. You know, when you slice and dice, like we talked about earlier, you might find out that the top bottom 20% of your product skews are actually losing you money or dragging down your overall margin. And if you just simply exited that business and focused resources on the higher margin products, that could actually improve the overall business for you now, obviously, as an owner, because you're going to take more out of the business and when you come to sell. So, you know, I think look at it through the eyes of a, of a buyer and try and reduce the risk that they might see in that business. You know, you want to you have, again, no questions, as, as close to predictable and smooth as you can possibly get it. Absolutely. I, wow. That that was actually brilliant advice. And you got that from one of my presentations? <laughs> That's shocking. I think it was you. It was some, some guy with no hair. I, you know, I assume it was you. <laughs> yeah, you got you to gotta really think about what the risks are in the business. Hey, this has been a wonderful conversation. Tell us, though, you know, I'm, I'm sold on Bulkley. I think Bulkley <laughs> is one of those firms that does a great job. But what sets you and Bulkley Capital apart from other investment bankers? Uh, interesting. I was just before this call, I was on a phone call with an undergraduate at UTD who was just asking for some insight into the, you know, the investment banking world, at least my end of it, and asked that same question, you know, what's different and what's special about us versus others? You know, I'm not going to pretend we're totally unique and special. I think the way that we present ourselves, the way that we think about running our business, there's two or three key aspects. One is that we're very focused on the situations and type of clients. So it's that size of business, like you mentioned, three or four million of EBITDA up to maybe 15 or 20 million of EBITDA. Those are either founders or family members who have inherited the business and their concerns, their priorities are a little different than owners of either very small businesses or much larger businesses, right? So, you know, I like to say, use the example that for most of our clients at the end of the day who are selling their businesses, prices, you know, pretty much the most important thing, but there's a bunch of other stuff that's very close to being as important in their minds, whether it's confidentiality, whether it's 
what's happening to my people, what's happening to my brand, what's happening to my legacy, what am I going to do? Um, and all that we understand all those, how that all plays into a transaction. So we work every day with those types of owners. So anyone who comes to us, we're familiar with their situation. Uh, second, as opposed to most boutique firms, I think we are we provide a full range of corporate finance, corporate development services. So, like I said at the beginning, we're not only selling companies. A lot of a lot of investment banks really only sell uh, companies. We are doing a, almost as much on the buy side, helping people grow their businesses through acquisitions, through developing an acquisition strategy, and then going and executing on that and protecting the business while we do it. And then what you were talking about earlier, kind of growth capital, recapitalization transactions where people are maybe taking chips off the table, maybe bringing in someone with a bigger checkbook, someone that can help them think through the next phases of growth and help them expand while they retain ownership in the business, whether it's minority or majority, and have that second bite of the apple down the road where there's another transaction that perhaps yields even more wealth than the first transaction because they've grown very aggressively in the four or five years since. Um, and then third, you know, the only thing is, is process. I mean, and this is depends on the client and what, they, what they're looking for. At our firm, we're not believers. We don't conduct broad, widely shopped auctions. So we're big believers. We've talked about preparation today. We're big believers that part of that preparation is what exactly are you looking to solve for as a business owner? And that will lead to a different, a specific set of buyers. And then what is your personality? Who are you looking for as a partner or a buyer? And that will narrow that field down further. And we think you do your homework at the front end. Yes, our job is to give business owners some options, some viable options. But we think we can do that with a more targeted kind of rifle shot approach rather than a shotgun broad approach to the market, which by the way, at the same time, you know, is designed to protect the business in the meantime. A lot of our clients, I mentioned the things they cared about. Confidentiality is usually number one. Uh, the disruption to a business from your competitors, your vendors, your employees thinking that you're for sale can be huge. And you must always leave yourself the option that, you know, what if you decide at the end of the day not to sell? I mean, you could go out to market, get some not like the offers you get, just wake up one morning and have seller's remorse and change your mind. <laughs> Something could happen in the economy or to your business that suddenly derails the process and takes it off the market and you have to run it again for a few years. If you get that business back, you want it to be still strong and still growing and not weakened or broken by a process that maybe caused you know, people to leave. And, and guess who leaves when there's disruption or they're worried about ownership? It's your best people, not your worst people. Um, so... You know, they're the ones that have the options that get the calls from the recruiters. So protect the business through, and we do it through a very targeted, proactive and selective process. I love that. I love the approach that you guys take. I love the work that you do. There, there's a lot of options uh, that you provide out there and and a big, big fan of uh, Buckley Capital. So as we kind of wind down here, uh, one last business question. You know, this podcast, of course, is all about building or maximizing business value. So what's the one most important thing that you recommend to business owners to build long-term sustainable value in their business? Yeah, I, I, I go back to something we touched on earlier. And for me, long-term sustainable value translates to building something that can grow 
live and thrive without you as the owner and the founder, right? And a business that can see where it's going at any point of time and can adapt when needed and justified by the business. So to me, that means investing in you know, the best people, the best systems, the best processes, and documenting. That's another thing you've talked about, documenting those processes so it's not resonant in one person's tribal knowledge. It's an enterprise thing, and you're really building a true enterprise there. And I think the line often said is, you know, success for business owner is being able to, you know, walk away from the business and it's still being surviving without them. And there's a lot to be said to that because I think, you know, the value that you're creating is then transferable. Just gives you options. Doesn't mean you have to walk away. It gives you options that someone else could come in. And then my my freebie, because everyone says this, is that culture is really important, and it really is, even though it sounds kind of hack. Um, you know, I think about our clients who are kind of mid-sized businesses in very large competitive markets, and somehow they've carved out a niche. And somehow they're generating above average margins and making a very good living, and they've built something of real value, even though there's a huge guy down the road, right, that's competing for their space. And I think a lot of it comes down to culture that if you've built, and it changes, what that culture is depends on the people, the industry, what part of the country you're in. But as long as it's every client we work with, it feels like there's a very clear and honest and consistent and a reinforced culture, whatever that is, that makes people want to work there, want to stay there, makes it easier to retain and recruit the best talent and, you know, ends up coming through in the profit margins and in customer relationships, customers that really want to stay with you. And that's, again, is part of that transferable value, right? Those customer relationships. Wow. That is, that is some great advice, but that was almost a three for, right? I asked for (laughs) a, a, a bunch of things and that's awesome. Every piece of it, a great advice. Of course, for our longtime listeners, you know that I always ask the bonus question, and I'll be willing to bet that Oliver's going to be a little shy about this one, but uh, everybody wait, everybody waits for it. They listen to the whole podcast waiting for the answer to this question. What personality trait has gotten you into the most trouble over the years? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I'm probably going to sidestep it a little bit, but I'd say being being the thing that comes to mind is being kind of an analytical person. So I'm totally... I'm on that side. I'm a quantitative guy. I like numbers. I like analyzing things. You know, I think I probably tend to overthink things in my life. And while that maybe hasn't got me into trouble, I'm sure that it's slowed me down in the past. The, the, the tendency to try and know exactly what's going to happen if I take this path versus that path of think it all through maybe means I miss the exit every once in a while, right? And I feel like, you know, it's, it's frankly one of the things that really impresses me when I meet other people, that ability to, to make decisions, to live with them, to go through and not worry about what's going to happen and what the world is thinking. I think that's a really a great character trait. It's, it's something I see in my kids, which they certainly get from my wife and not from me. But I'm always really impressed with our kids' willingness to get out there, get in front of people, try something new and not get totally frozen by worrying about and overanalyzing. So I'm, I'm getting better at that and trying to get better at that in, in my personal life. So we'll see. I'm, I'm work, still a working process. 
Well, well, let me give you, you did, we, didn't, we didn't bargain for this, but let me give you the piece of advice that I got early in my career that I really took to heart. I had one time, I sold a business to a big publicly traded company. I went to work for that company for a short amount of time. And one time uh, I was uh, at a management retreat. We were down in, uh, in, uh, at the Florida Keys and I'm sitting out having a, 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 some sort of a tropical drink uh, out on the beach before dinner. And the CEO comes over and he says, uh, you know, hey, how you doing? And I said, I'm awesome. You know, great, very approachable guy. Uh, he's long since uh, passed on. He was, a, he was a wonderful man. But he says, uh, so Bronson, um, uh, out of the, uh, you know, you've been with us for about six months now. How many really bad decisions have you made? And I said, uh, well, gee, Pat, I don't, I don't think I've made any. And he said, exactly. He said, you make really, really good decisions. And you know what that tells me? And I said that I'm a really smart guy. And he said, no. <laughs> he said, it tells me that you move too slow. He says, you're yeah. not making enough decisions. He said, Bronson, from here on out, if you don't make at least three bad decisions out of every 10 decisions you make, then you're not moving fast enough. So don't break the company. He said, you're not, Interesting. you don't, you're not responsible enough to go out and uh, for enough things to go out and totally break the company, but I want you to move faster. And I said, that is great advice. And I have taken it to heart ever since. And so, so uh, there you go. My yeah, piece of that's advice. Good. Yeah. Uh, thank you. No, that, that, that's smart. Yeah. It, it was solid. It served me well. So, so how can our viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Well, we, we have a website, like <laughs> bulkleycapital.com and it's, B-U-L-K-L-E-Y says an L on either side of the K. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and that kind of thing. And, you know, we're active in, you know, a few networking organizations. You mentioned Provisors, um, which is a great kind of business development tool of professionals, service providers. Um, very active in Association for Corporate Growth, which is a national middle market um, M&A focused uh, business development and networking organization. Uh, so happy to talk about any of those, just as you are, obviously happy to talk about either of those organizations. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been great fun. It's been a great conversation today. Thank you for yeah. being our guest. So you thank you so much. Out. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Uh, you can find Oliver at Bulkley Capital. I like that. An L on either side of the K. Bulkleycapital.com. You can find him on LinkedIn. But of course, as always, you can reach out to me and I will be happy to make a warm introduction to, to someone who's become a great, good uh, friend of mine. So uh, this is Maximize Business Value, uh, a podcast where we give practical advice to business owners on how to build long-term sustainable value in your business. Be sure to tune in each week and follow us wherever you found this podcast. And be sure to comment. We love comments and we respond to every single one of them. So until next time, I'm Tom Bronson reminding you to prepare for your exit long before the event while you maximize business value. Thank you for tuning into the Maximize Business Value podcast with Tom Bronson. This podcast is brought to you by Mastery Partners, where our mission is to equip business owners to maximize business value so they can transition on their terms. Learn more on how to build long-term sustainable business value and get free value-building tools by visiting our website, www.masterypartners.com. That's master with a Y, masterypartners.com. Check it out.
that was perfect. I wouldn't make any changes on that.